the reading of the scriptures, uh, reading Psalm 111. I invite your uh, hearing of God's word, uh, both with reverence, but also in faith. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, perhaps uh, not unlike uh, most of you, I've uh, been reading uh, articles in the paper or certainly perhaps seeing something on the television that the church is in great decline. Uh, losing numbers, um, I'm sure many other things. So it's a bad state of affairs. And that, of course, uh, is, is caused by a number of things. Um, secularism has come into the church. Uh, we're losing our grip on theology, uh, the history that defines us. And there's really no compelling reason to worship God, is there? except when you read the Scriptures. Then there's a compelling reason because the Scriptures uh, call us uh, together corporately, corporately, publicly. I know a number of Christians who say, well, I can, I can worship at home. Um, I remember I was on a fishing trip in Alaska. Uh, the guide said, this is, this is my church. He was pointing to the mountains. Really? It's, I mean... I understood in, in really the worst of ways uh, because uh, that is not corporate worship. Uh, but we have a way of saying, uh, because it's boring, I'm not going, uh, other things to do, why not play golf? But one of the major keys of corporate worship is that we're reminded of the past, the great things that God has done and of course who God is that are the guarantees of the present and future. And that is a decisive thought, guarantee of the present and the future. Many guarantees in life. Only God guarantees the future. And so the psalmist this morning uh, summons us to praise God uh, in the first verse. 
And it is a plural summons. In other words, he's not calling himself or his family. He's calling God's people to gather to worship. It's very interesting that this psalm is an acrostic, meaning that each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, in my own mind, that's a mnemonic device, perhaps to help uh, the psalmist uh, memorize uh, the psalm. If he knows the alphabet, he can work his way down the entire Psalter. Uh, but it is, uh, it's also a reminder of, of perhaps it's a liturgical advice. Gather the people of God to worship. Amidst all of the secularism of our age, of people playing golf, of other things to do, of the Big 12 tournament, of uh, the World Series that their lady are playing, there's so many things to do, but the psalmist summons us as God's people to gather corporately to worship. Technically, this is a praise psalm. This, I think, is fairly obvious. We, we come together to praise God. Some contend that the uh, psalm is post-exilic, written after the exile. If that's true, it's interesting to recall the very challenging times of, of, uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because they had other things to do than worship God. Uh, it's very difficult. They're back in the land. Well, they've got to get their businesses up and going. They've got to get their fields ready. Um, money was tight. Little money to pay the priests and the Levites. Um, there, of course, were uh, none of their own to marry, so they were marrying uh, uh, the Gentiles, which the Scriptures uh, prohibited. Uh, again, they had all types of reasons. Uh, so that if this is indeed a post-exilic psalm, it's great importance that the psalmist is gathering the people because they've been wandering. They've been engaging in all of the individual affairs of life, but there's one affair that is of supreme importance, and that's the people of God to come together corporately to worship the one true God. And the summons uh, is a summons of the congregation. Isolation is, uh, is not an alternative for the Christian. Uh, we obviously are individual Christians, but we are uh, saved in a body. We are saved in the church. Christ died for a bride. It is a corporate event, therefore, which summons us to worship God. So that part of the Christian life is the corporate affair. The corporate affair of gathering to worship. Now I understand we as individuals worship God. We, we have times of devotion, uh, we have times of private prayer. At least I trust you do. Those things are important too. Uh, but your Christian life is forever incomplete if you do it as an individual. Because our faith is a team event. It's a gathering of people. Christ died for a bride, a collective body. 
And so in the assembly, the psalmist says, I will give thanks uh, with my whole heart in the company, gathering of the people of God. It's interesting that his uh, inner man is is uh, engaged, a whole heart reference to the inner man. Figure of speech, obviously. Uh, the heart is an organ, but the psalmist is referencing our inner being. He's engaging the entirety of his inner life to the praise of God in the congregation, the assembly of the upright. It's a very interesting uh, description, the assembly of the upright. I think what he's saying is that all of you Israelites who are staying home to plow your fields, um, who have intermarried with the nations, um, who have so much to do to care for your home, to stand up your business, perhaps you should stay there. Let the upright come and worship God. The very real way he may be defining the true people of God. Because I understand that the church doesn't save us. I understand that corporate worship is not a salvific event, but true faith gathers. And the summons of the psalmist is an illustration of that gathering. It's a gathering of the upright, the true people of God, who, who understand that perhaps one of the most Important events of all of life is to gather with God's people. To leave aside the private, the individual, to come together publicly, because that's what we are. We're a people. God's people. Bruising, uh, the first, uh, first verse of Psalm 73 uh, is also a implied reference to the upright uh, gathering. And the psalmist says, surely God is good to Israel. And then he defines who Israel is, even to those who are of a pure heart. The upright. The man or the woman who's straight in his heart. But that there is a public gathering of the upright in heart. The parallel phrase in Psalm 111 is, I'll praise God in the assembly, meaning a corporate place of worship. It's very interesting that uh, a derivative of this Hebrew word um, is the word for witness. And that's one of the greatest things that the church does when it gathers publicly. We witness to the world that... You know, play golf on Saturday. I don't, but people can play golf on Saturday. Lots of things we could do on a Sunday morning, but the greatest thing is to gather as God's people. Defines us as to who we are. The company of those who are pure in heart. Who are engaging in the event to which the psalmist summons us in an imperative. He doesn't say, let me give you a suggestion for Sunday morning. He commands us to come and worship publicly. And that is a witness to the world. 
because it defines us as God's people. In a way that individual worship simply cannot do. And then as you might imagine, he gives us reasons to worship God in the rest of the psalm. Commandment followed by reasons. A reasons to gather in praise publicly, corporately as God's people. First in verses 2 to 3, we worship because of the way that God intervenes in our lives. Uh, the psalmist says we, we come together and we proclaim the great works of God. The works of God meaning his intervention to save his people. And that in and of itself is a compelling reason to come. Because had not God intervened in your life, you would not be numbered among the people of God. That intervention is so decisive as it speaks to the grace of God. Because His intervention is what makes us His people. And His people correspondingly praise and worship Him in light of that intervention. Everywhere in the Old Testament, the works of God Exodus 34, verse 10, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you before all the people. I'm going to perform miracles that I haven't produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it's a fearful thing that I'm going to perform in your midst. And then when you end the book, what happens? There's the tabernacle. And the Shekinah glory of God descends from heaven and fills the tabernacle. That heaven intervenes in the life of the nation. The glory of the Lord. It was a visual event to the people of Israel. To us, it's more of an audible event. That we gather to learn of the great works of God and the majesty of His glory in saving His people. Reminded of the great historical event of Christ, the Son of God, came and tabernacled, dwelt among us, but literally it's tabernacled among us. The Old Testament tabernacle is now fulfilled in Christ and the tabernacle of God is in the midst of His people. And with us, of course, it's His Spirit. He has dispatched His Spirit to live in us. The great triune God living in us. In the Old Testament, God lived in a temple. We're now the temple. He lives in us. It's a compelling reason to worship, to gather, because that's an unprecedented event. God living in His people. Not in a building in His people. Reminder in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, you are the temple of God. 
meaning God dwells in us. And that reality of, of this, this greatness is, is illustrated from our text, uh, meaning that they are to come together, uh, verse 2, and, and study those works for all who delight in them. And really, delight is uh, charged by the study of them. It's one of the reasons the study of God is so vastly important. Because the more you study, the more you delight. Because you recognize that God came for you. He didn't have to come for you. He was under no obligation to come for you. He doesn't come for you because you were a good person or even that you had faith. He came and claimed you as one of his own. The word study is to seek with care. Uh, it's from this word that we have the Hebrew word midrash. It's almost like a commentary. We study the great works of God and we write commentaries on His majesty. Uh, libraries of the world could be filled with His works because manifold greatness. And we, and we delight in them. And one of the applications to that is, uh, Certainly here at our church, we are committed to that study because shallowness is not the way to worship God. True worship is uh, the product of the gathering of God's people having studied His greatness, grasped something of the significance of uh, the profoundness of that event. They're so profound that we investigate to comprehend their fullness and to, to revel in, in their meaning. And so when the psalmist gathers us to remember the great, wonderful works of God, it's, it's like a history lesson. Because remembering what God has done is essential to worship. I find it so interesting in our culture today that uh, we are um, dabbling with revisionist history. 1619 Project. Thankfully, a true scholar writes a book entitled 1620. The danger of that is if you redefine your history, you define yourself, you redefine yourself. And that's an essential reason that we come to remember the great works of God. We, we know that history defines us. And it engages uh, a worship that God came and he intervened. Uh, it's also important to recognize that we live in an age of profound counterfeits. Um, certainly in the church. If you don't know the great works of God from history and how they define your present and guarantee your future, you're so prone to accept counterfeits. And counterfeits are dangerous. Counterfeits will kill you. And that's why our history is so important as the people of God. And that's why its engagement and the corporate gathering of God's people is decisive for us. 
And the outcome of that in, in verse 3 is that his, his works are splendid and majestic. Probably a compression, a technical figure of speech called Hendiadus, in which two words are really cited, but they're to be compressed in one to intensify the splendor of God's intervention in our lives. Reminded of a historical event that's so critical to us. Um, Revelation chapter 5. John is weeping because there's the book of redemption and no one can open it. Meaning, the great acts of redemption can never be told, understood, forgotten, as if nothing has happened. So John is weeping. Angel says, stop weeping. Because Christ has opened the book. So that we can understand and revel in this incredible redemptive event, not just as individuals, but corporately. Because Christ died for a people. He saves people. And then in verse 9, that our Redeemer purchased men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Redefining, if you will, the church. Christ, uh, the great Redeemer. How can you read that and not say, that's, that's impressive. He purchased me and put me in his body, made me a member of his bride. I understand in our culture, in many cases, many, many cases, uh, weddings are private events, and that's fine. I'm not mandating one or the other, but uh, my own tradition is a public event. The bride comes; she's not dour and sad. Woe is me! I'm undone. She is reveling in what is about to occur, witnessed by a corporate body of people making it solemn, a celebration, provoking in all of us who are Christians the wedding of the bride, and we are that bride, and the coming feast of the Lamb in which we will celebrate. I like parties after weddings. We, I mean, you just, you just have to celebrate. And that's what we will do. We should revel in the fact that our redemption is a guarantee that we will be gathered at that event. But in the case of our redemption, it's, it's more than just the outcome. It's, it's the way that it's done. So the psalmist says his righteousness stands forever. Stands forever. Um, righteousness. Isaiah 42, 6, Jesus says, or God says, I've called you in righteousness. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God. You and I know this righteousness and the doctrine of justification. 
in which God charges to our account all of the merits of the obedience of Jesus Christ as the entire soul final basis of our salvation. The greatest transaction of all of life is the imputation of that righteousness uh, to his people. And these works, this great work displays the grace and the rectitude of God uh, forever, and therefore forever to be celebrated publicly. Secondly, we worship God because of the way his eternal covenant of redemption is realized. Verses 4 to 9. Uh, succinctly, he does it. And his attributes guarantee the outcome. Uh, one of the things we do in our public worship is we study the attributes of God because they are life-changing. The more you understand about who God is, the more you're protected from revisionist history, the more you're protected from counterfeits, and the more you are just simply given to delight and reverie because his attributes partake of the reality that he came for you in sovereign grace, mercy, and compassion for no other reason than who he is. Nothing at all to do with who you are or what you've done not discounting necessarily some of those things. And so God makes a memorial of his wonders so that we can remember. Um, I like to study, uh, go to ancient battlefields in America. Civil War. If you've ever been to France, you have to go to Normandy. Great testament. But God in the assembly builds a memorial for us to say the God-man died for me, shed his blood, the one for the many, to purchase me. The outcome is praise. Because it's beyond all human ability. None could do it but Christ. It's very interesting in terms of recounting history of much of the Old Testament is given to the great uh, event of the Exodus. Exodus 15. Great history lesson. Great memorial. Verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. He came as a warrior to defeat our enemies. Verse 6, thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. God's power saves you. God's power shatters the enemy. Verse 11, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness? Well, the answer is no one. And so we build that memorial from Scripture to come to praise this God. Reduplicated for us in the church, Revelation chapter 12. The woman is fleeing from Pharaoh and the wings of an eagle are given to her. Recapitulation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. The wings of an eagle we mount up that God gives to the church so he can take us away and nourish us to prepare us for the war that's always going to be present. The great redemptive acts of God. The great person of God. That unto us a child is given. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Eternal Father. 
So his works testify that he's gracious and compassionate to us as individuals, but also to the church. And he also provisions us so that we do not want. Uh, the text reads that uh, he gives uh, one Psalm 111, verse 5, he, he gives food to those who fear him. Probably a figure of speech. Part for the whole, the whole being he provisions us all along the way. The immediate reference could very well be the uh, manna and the quail and the water provision his people in the great exodus uh, that you and I are a part of now. We've learned from the book of Acts. God provisioning us all along the way. Remind you of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 4.19. But my God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ. Nothing left out. The riches of glory. Shepherding us all along the way. And the manner he fulfills his promise is a function of his ability to secure our passage as he remembers his covenant forever. Experiencing this word forever occurs five times in this psalm. When God works, he does forever. When he saves, he saves forever. Who guarantees that? You sign the warranty on your washing machine. You read the word forever. No, it's going to break. Everything in your life's going to break. Your car's going to break. Your mower's going to break. At the worst of times, by the way. When God works, He works forever. And He cannot forget or overlook our needs, meaning that None are lost along the way. God loves us so much that He makes us willing in the day of His power and He keeps us to remind us and to build within us the confidence of His ability to get us to the end. Immediate reference here is uh, He's going to give uh, give to the His people uh, the nations in giving them the heritage of the nations. Uh, probably the immediate reference to Joshua 24. I love that text. He, uh, Joshua, through God, tells the people, I'm going to give you a land, and there are going to be houses on it you won't have to build. I'm going to give you a land, and the, the fields are already going to be plowed. Everything stood up for you. Reminded to us that everything, every constituent, fundamental part of our redemption has been accomplished by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing left to be done other than to follow and to worship, and to praise, and delight in. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, in him we have an inheritance. The great land promises of the Old Testament were just simply typological of eternity. We have an inheritance. Notice have, not maybe, not if you're good enough. We have in Christ. 
And in verses 7 to 8, his works in securing us incorporates truth and justice, uh, meaning that promise and fulfillment is reliable and permanent. Permanent. That his government is just and he will always make it right for us. Everything seemingly is in chaos and out of control, uh, not with God upon the throne. That his precepts are trustworthy. Our God is dependable. We can count on him because he works in forever terms. The basic idea to me is that we can lean on him. It reminds me of, of uh, Deuteronomy 33.27. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Inspirational to the hymn, leaning on the everlasting arms. Our arms give way. His never do. So he works in truth and uprightness in that he deals straight with us, absent hidden agendas and deception. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. One of the reasons we come, come to the church, restoration of the soul, putting the pieces back together, because our lives sometimes get so fractured and broken and only God can. But for his people, God does. And he will. The reputations of his accomplishments are world-renowned in the midst of his people. Utterly unique and should inspire us because of its certainty and irreversibility. The promises of God forever. And then the congregation is dismissed with a summons to revere the Lord. Interesting, the psalmist says, the beginning of wisdom. The beginning. Revere the Lord. It's a calling to order our spiritual lives in faithfulness because He was faithful to us. To love Him because He loved us. This is the man who has insight and the ability to turn away from spiritual danger. That's why... Another reason we come to church to be fed, to be strengthened, to learn about counterfeits, to reject revisionist history, to learn about the true God, and to follow Him, to wed our hearts in devotion to Him, uh, because there are so many competitors. But the man who begins with wisdom and understanding is the man who turns away from them. Great illustration of this, by the way, in Psalm 73. The psalmist is in spiritual trouble. He's, he's beginning to slip in his faith. Dangerous time in his life. Because he's become envious. And envious is deadly, envious deadly to the soul. Until something happens. You know what that is? Until I came into the house of God. And I heard about the works of God. He comes to the assembly. Perhaps he reads Psalm 111. He obeys the summons to come. And he does. And there he learns the end of those who he is envying. And the psalm breaks out in the great acts, great acts of God. 
The psalmist says, you, 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 you will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? No one else. That's why we come. The majesty of the divine who has come in Christ gathers us by his spirit and then summons us together corporately. And the true people of God, I understand corporate gathering doesn't save us, but true faith gathers with God's people. And that worship is a timeless and enduring event where we are strengthened and reminded fellowship we have with the Savior. But it's also an occasion where we engage in the sacrament of the Lord's table. It's not something you can do at home or in the mountains of Alaska. It's sacrament of the Lord's table. Reminder, the great historic event of our redemption where we celebrate Him and have fellowship with Him. Uh, receive from His hand, if you will, bread and the wine to strengthen us in our journey. In which occasion he's always whispering in our ears, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the physical elements are a reminder of that. Not in the elements themselves, but as in faith we apprehend what they mean. That he gave his body to be punished and he shed his blood for the remission of our sin. Historic Israel, it was the celebration of the Passover. We don't do that at Grace Bible Church because Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5.7. And we come to fellowship with Him. Uh, as, I, uh, as I prepare to distribute the elements, I remind you that um, this is an event that's for Christians. You're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's simply not for you, for God's people. I don't say that in any way to embarrass or to isolate, make you feel bad. Just simply watch, hear, learn, listen, observe. This is for God's people. Because He shed His blood, gave His body to be punished, to gather His people. But it's also good to remind of the warning of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.28. He says, examine yourself. And this involves a proper discernment of the elements which represent the sacrifice of Christ. So that we come to the elements in faith and repentance as members of that body. Scriptural warrant, of course, they're everywhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? A fellowship. A fellowship with Christ. The word sharing is the Greek word koinonia. We fellowship with the Savior. He comes as the host of the table to distribute to us, having apprehended by faith what He did for us the majesty of our redemption and fellowship with Him is a constituent element of corporate worship that defines us as the true people of God. Since then there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of one bread. 
As I, as I pass the elements, or the elements are passed through, I remind you that there is wine in the center of the service and the periphery. There is grape juice that each may uh, apprehend in the freedom of their own particular tradition. But more importantly, to apprehend by faith the great historic event of our redemption. Securing the present and the future. The eternal covenant of redemption. If there's something that you need to get right with God, there's an occasion for you to do so as the service is being passed. But at some point, leave it off and begin to praise God for what He did. That He intervened for you. The one for the many. That His body was broken. He suffered terrible anguish in body and soul for His people to redeem them, to purchase them, uh, to make them one. And because there's uh, one bread, we partake as an expression of the unity of the church, of the timeless creation of the great God, gathering His people, making them one, based upon the work of the one for the many. We thank Thee, Lord, for the bread. Not because it nourishes us physically, but because it reminds us of grace that we need every day to follow, to keep, to observe, to obey, and to worship. And may it keep us throughout the week and the weeks to come that we would keep ourselves holy for the divine and the worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, Amen. In the passing of the cup, would you uh, please hold it to which time uh, all of us uh, are served and then we will uh, partake together. We might escape the wrath of God that we so richly deserved and for this cup of the new covenant in celebration of our new life and hope. We apprehend in drinking it the reality that by faith we were saved by the blood of Christ and the grace of God that succors us each and every day. May it remind us of Thy goodness. May it strengthen us as we remember. And may it bless us individually and corporally that we might shine as lights in a dark world. And so testify that we belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ, our faithful and only Redeemer, in His name we pray. Amen. We want to thank you for coming to be with us. This is the Lord's Day for gathering according to the words of the psalmist and for the occasion to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table. A couple of announcements. Most of them are a little bit old. Um, next week, uh, Warfield Lecture Series, um, we do need people to uh, work the registration table, so uh, CJ, if you're so inclined, 
Uh, last, uh, last I saw, there were about 150 people coming. Uh, I suspect that'll uh, rise a little bit as uh, people wait to the last minute uh, to register. Um, so I think it'd be a great event. Um, first time in Scott Chapel at Oklahoma Christian University, so just remind you of that. Uh, the hoax will be with us on the 11th of July. Uh, we are collecting funds to support works in the Congo and uh, Uganda. Our church picnic this evening, uh, pulled pork, uh, please bring appropriate sides, desserts, and lawn chairs. I just pray we can use lawn chairs and sit outside, but uh, since I don't control the weather, we'll see how that works out. Uh, anyone have something they would like to bring to God's attention before we are dismissed? Well, good enough. Let's stand for concluding prayer and uh, worthy and, and uh, celebration of God's uh, goodness. Our Father, we uh, uh, recite uh, with the saints of heaven that worthy is the Lamb that was slain to gather thy people. And worthy art thou, O God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. And bless us, Lord, as we depart, uh, for thy kingdom's sake and the majesty of our great Savior. In whose name we pray, even Christ. Amen.